My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And my name is Meg. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. Everworld Edition. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The and The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The, the Underground. The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Sickle Discovery. The Proposal. The Threat. The Weakness. The Violation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicious. The Unexpected. The Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. this week everworld six fear the fantastic did you fear the fantastic ted no but some of the characters did Mm. maybe i mean the title didn't really apply no not really at all as per usual i think it does if you feel the title is a reference to homophobia (laughs) (laughs) okay yes best take low but appropriate blow (laughs) yeah so what you're saying meg is it should have been called fear the fabulous yes Missed opportunity. What were they thinking? So Meg, general thought on this book? I hate Christopher, and I'm so glad he got called out. Um, And I'm glad he got punched a lot. (laughs) I I feel like now our character arcs are finally kicking off, that people are reflecting. But wow, it took a lot to make Christopher realize how heinous his actions are. And remains to be seen if he'll continue on uh, pulling his head out of his ass. Yeah. How about you, Gray? It took six books for there to be some kind of character arc, and the character arc was stupid and sucked. Hated this book. (laughs) Hate Christopher. Real annoyed that I had to read it. Didn't enjoy any part of it, except sometimes April made me laugh. But other than that, hated it all. How about you, Jenny? So I continue to be annoyed, but at this point I'm kind of resigned to the thing where these books don't really have a plot. Like, they have a plot. They don't have a plot. They just keep walking along and they, every once in a while, they're like, should we have a mission? And then they're like, nah. And it's just so dumb. I do now, I feel like, have a little more insight, like you guys were saying, into what they're trying to do with Christopher's character arc. I am willing to extend it a little bit of patience and see where it goes in the third and, I guess, final Christopher book, but I I don't feel like they've landed where they think they've landed at this point, and the literal Nazis didn't go where I expected them to go, and it's amazing that I have to say that. Ted, what did you think about it, and then would you like to summarize this piece of nonsense (laughs) for us? Sure. I mean, I would second what Jenny said about being resigned though I I think I will disagree with you Jenny in that (laughs) I expect it to go anywhere (laughs) one thing not the plot no but just Christopher the arcs and stuff but one thing I was just thinking about to that end is like when they wrote this book did they know this was part two of a three-part arc for Christopher or was did they did they assume that they would get they were gonna write you know 50 more of these and he would like you know, slowly change or whatever. Like, I, I'm, I'm actually really curious question. to see if the conclusion of this series is all the character arcs get abandoned so they can tie up the plot, or if, like, the final four books are, like, resolve David's thing, resolve Christopher's thing, resolve April's thing, resolve Jaleel's thing, and the plot. I feel like I might have expected the series to be this length at the time. Like, I definitely knew the last book was the last book, and that's why I, like, bought it. It's the only one I bought at the time. But I don't know. I'd be interested to hear from listeners. 
the internet if if we know if this like got cancelled or if it was always intended to be 12. Yeah. My impression from the internet is the ending is rushed. Mm. But we'll find out. Yeah, I don't know. I, I found the annoying stuff less annoying, but there wasn't really a lot of good stuff in here to make up for it. Um, I think I'm just kind of used to what Everworld has to offer. I also, I think I... I enjoyed how much Christopher suffers in this book, which is maybe not what I'm supposed to enjoy about it. I do like when he gets punched, as Meg said. And it happens more than once. Not as often as it should, but more than once. So here's, I'll try and summarize this book. Um, So when we last left our band, they were leaving the world of the leprechauns and fairies and heading into Hetwan territory because... That's where they ended up. And so they're wandering through Hetwan territory. They feel like they can't go back to the fairy town because no one likes them there anymore. And, you know, they're hoping the Hetwan don't notice them. This place is really dangerous. It's like very flat land, but then there are like ice cream scoop holes in the ground and the ice cream scoop shaped hills. And the land is covered with like like um mirror-like truffula trees that sing. I was thinking truffula trees too. But there are also these giant beaver ants that eat the trees and then the trees regrow really fast. So they have some misadventures with all that stuff. And they're just wandering around randomly. They're trying to avoid the Hetwan. There's also a procession of humans, but they're just trying to stay unseen. Meanwhile, back in the real world, Christopher is trying to find a job for some reason and he he's too racist to get a fast food job so he decides to work at a, a copy store for guys who seem to be uh, part of the clan because they're asking him about his whether Hitchcock is a, a white enough name. They back in in Everworld they teach the trees how to sing the Friends theme song and they get attacked by Hetwan who can now shoot acid with their mouth parts they are captured by the Hetwan, and they fight the Hetwan and kill them. This is like, I can't even, <laughs> there's like no narrative to hang this onto. It's like a <laughs> bunch of random stuff happens. Okay, so then basically, finally, David calls Christopher out on how bigoted he is and how, how tiresome everyone finds it. They get into a fight, and they draw the attention of uh, a really, really, really hot guy, Ganymede minor greek deity and then we realize this book is a very special episode about christopher's homophobia and ganymede takes them back to the procession of people ganymede and dionysus have been captured by the hetwan and are being brought to kaanor to feed kaanor um so our our heroes are kind of like tagging along but they realize obviously they don't want to meet kaanor Turns out it's not a big parade of people. It's just Dionysus and Ganymede because when Dionysus is drunk, he can summon illusory party people. (laughs) Um, So all the other people are imaginary. And Dionysus promises them that he can make them immortal if they free him. So they summon female Hetwan, which are like bags of guts with dragonfly wings, to distract the male Hetwan guards, so they can escape on horseback, which they do. And they unfortunately realize that when Dionysus said he could take them to Olympus, that Olympus is on the other side of Kaanor's big city. 
So they basically have to go the same way they were going, and the fastest way through is through Kaanor City, which is basically this giant um, needle tower with a lava moat in a giant, you know, five-foot diameter ice cream scoop pit. And there's a big green light on the top of the needle that is maybe Kaanor somehow. Did you say it was a five-foot diameter <clears throat> ice cream scoop pit? Possible. I meant a five-mile. Oh, okay. Mile. Mile. That's what I read, honey. Yeah, they stub their toe on it. That's, oh, boy. What a tragedy. <clears throat> so how do they get into the Hetwan City? Well, they figure the Hetwan aren't very smart and don't have the internet or walkie-talkies, so they can just disguise themselves. So they all switch clothes for some reason. And they ha- have these flying transporters that, they- that are called Red Wings that are going to take them from the edge of the pit into the city. But then the Hetwan that were chasing them catch up, so they have an aerial dogfight. Christopher almost falls to his death, but Ganymede rescues him. And meanwhile, Christopher in the real world has realized that these are not, these um, copy people are not just like clan members, but actual Nazis. They have, like, conspiracy theory-laden stuff that they're copying covered in swastikas, and they're like, you know, you seem... They basically tell Christopher that he seems like he would make a good Nazi, but he's just not committed enough. And Christopher walks away, but not before uh, attracting the attention of one of the Nazis who threatens to hurt his family. If he tells anyone they're Nazis, I think, was the situation? Well... Maybe just in general. I don't know. Yeah, it didn't really make a lot of sense. And then Christopher goes home, and his parents are drunk and yelling at each other, and he feels sorry for himself. Back in Kaanor Town, they see Senna on a wanted poster. Dionysus throws a party in the middle of the city, which gives them away. And as they are escaping the Hetwan, Ganymede is left behind, and Christopher feels super guilty about this, because Ganymede just saved his life, and he was not able to return the favor. Everyone but Ganymede um, flees deeper into the tower, since the, the only way out is through. The hive, the Hetwan hive, seems like it's kind of alive. Um, And they stumble into the central chamber of the tower where Ka'anor exists. And (laughs) Ka'anor is a constantly shape-shifting mass that represents fear itself. And they arrive just in time to see Ganymede get fed to Ka'anor and... Upon eating Ganymede, Kaanor kind of like fizzles out and vanishes for the time being. And the rest of the book is basically Christopher uh, going on a a drinking binge of self-pity as they escape the city and make it to Olympus. In the real world, the Nazi leaves a, a swastika carved into Christopher's brother's bike as a threat. And as they approach Olympus, Christopher reflects on his behavior, sort of, and resolves (laughs) to be a better person by avenging Ganymede's death. I think that gets us to the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. Where should we start? Can we talk a little bit about the truffula trees? Because that was literally (laughs) where my first thought was. Yeah, so like, I thought truffula trees, but then they kept calling them like glass trees or mirror trees, which is not very truffula. So I, I, I don't know. But go ahead. And Mary. then they also kept singing as well. But I just, again, again, the alien stuff is great. Yeah, Why isn't so this cool. book 100% about aliens? Yeah, because the mythology stuff 
is stupid. Yeah, the the whole ice cream scoop land with the singing trees and then there are like wood chip beasts that run over them and eat the trees and then the trees grow back really fast. And like there was just lots of really cool stuff. Yeah, beaver rat things. <laughs> I don't know. And like, okay, actually, this is an unanswered question I have about alien biology that does not matter at all. But in this book, they persist on calling the bag of guts the female het Yeah, ones. okay. Yet, the het, the, what happens in the, like, mating frenzy in this sexual dimorphism between these aliens is that the het ones we've seen that are, like, you know, big bug things essentially mm. eat and destroy the bags of goo. And then those bug-shaped het ones produce young in sort of egg sacs around their middle. Now, obviously, this is an alien (laughs) species, and I'm not trying to necessarily, you know, enforce Earth-based biology on them. However... Why not? The books are. Yeah. In other species that we've seen on Earth, the egg-bearing species is generally considered female Uh for the most part, and the inseminating half of the species is generally considered male. And we do have examples of, you know, species that do this sort of thing. Like there's um, there, uh, like an anglerfish, right? Like the uh, male anglerfish attach themselves and become basically just like sperm producing sacs so that the female anglerfish can create new anglerfish. My point is the het ones we've seen that are fighting them are the females. Yes. I had that in my notes also. I'm like, why do they think these are the males if they're the ones who get impregnated by these other ones that they destroy? Like, I feel like there are a lot of insects where there's, like, some kind of, like, sexual intercourse, whatever that means for these insects, and then the female eats the male. Like, that felt very, like, an insect dynamic to me. And I'm like, I guess I don't really have a clear understanding of, like, what biologists use to determine what is the male and what is the female of a given species. There's probably some technical definition for this. I feel like these books aren't applying them. They're just like, well, these are the fighter ones, so they're the males. Because sexism is the same in all species. Even just the default ones? or like the Yeah, the default ones, so they have to be the males. It was just, I was very offended. Yeah. It's such a good point. It's like, and like, I would think, my guess is that they didn't really think about it or else they would have had, like, April say something about it, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. Yeah, they're like, let's make it weird by, like, switching this part up and they didn't realize they were actually, like, switching up the genders. And, I mean, they wouldn't have had April... They would have had April say something about it, but then they would have had, like, David and Christopher be incredibly insecure about how they're uh, oh, right. no, fighting exactly, exactly. females and getting their butts kicked. Yeah. This reminds me of the Anglerfish song by Hank Green. Uh, you guys listen to it? <laughs> I don't know the song. No, but awesome. Okay. I can't remember the tune, but there's this one verse that's like, the deep sea dwelling anglerfish never has to find a mate. They are always there together when it's time to procreate. See, when dark night, a young male bites the female on her side, and then slowly he becomes a sperm producing parasite. And if we can say he lives at all, he lives until she dies. And until that day, he literally never, ever leaves her side. Okay, that's amazing. It's called the Anglerfish Song, and it's great. Like, yeah, the deep-sea anglerfish has no reason to be happy, but it has no freaking idea what else to be. (laughs) (laughs) This is very philosophical. I like it. Okay, okay. Yeah, everybody look up a song about an anglerfish by Hank Green. 
I love it's it. better than this book. <laughs> like a lot. But yeah, I was during the illusion scene, Jenny, I was also thinking about, oh man, everyone is sexist exactly how we are sexist. Oh, Even yeah. though, you know, they're aliens. They could have had three genders or four genders or yeah. anyway. Nope. Also, the gods are sexist in the same way that we're sexist, which like makes sense in some ways because, of course, all gods and in particular, you know, ancient Greek, whatever, are just manifestations of our feelings about our own society. But also, shut up. <laughs> and also these gods come from different points in human history where sexism has actually looked very different yeah despite what we want to tell it ourselves now at this point like i want one of you to say the thing that you just said about april to athena and see how that goes for you <laughs> <laughs> i mean the ancient greeks were like deeply sexist but probably not in the same way and actually one way that their sexism manifested itself which we don't get at all in this book is in homosexuality if that's even the right term but like the ancient greeks i'm sure it varied among different like groups of the ancient greeks but like you know they had this thing where like warriors were supposed to take younger warriors under their wing and have sex with them and that was kind of part of it and like once you became a man, you were no longer the penetrated party in a sexual relationship, which is like deeply rooted in misogyny. But of course we have David and Christopher here. They have this homophobia that's rooted in their type of sexism. It's just a completely different societal context and we don't really get into it at all, even though it would be a really interesting contrast. Yeah, I mean, Ganymede is actually the story that is used, Plato uses to describe how that sexual relationship worked. And mm. uh, his Greek, his, um, his Roman name, so the Greek name is Ganymede. The Roman name for Ganymede is um, Catamitis. It's like I had to do it backwards. It's Catamitis, oh, which is where we get the word Catamite from. But Plato has this whole extended thing about how about Ganymede being the the younger lover and the sort of pederast relationship of that uh, between Zeus and Ganymede is held up as one example of how this would have worked. Plato does this whole like thing about how much he hates Crete and one of the reasons is that they're all pederasts so therefore that's obviously where this myth would have come from which is Absurd for lots of reasons, the f biggest of which being that our first textual evidence for this is actually in the Iliad, which mm. has like three lines about Ganymede being taken up by Zeus uh, because he was he was a Trojan. Ganymede was a Trojan. Mm. And so he was like, as they say in this book, right, he was very beautiful and he was out tending the sheep or whatever. And Zeus came down as an eagle and was like, hey, you're hot. Come hang out with me. Mm hmm. So it's like, it's very different. And I will say that like the, um, that relationship has, it seems from the historical record to be like slightly more nuanced than Jenny's, um, description, but not much. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Um, my, my, um, one of my favorite profs in, when I was a, a classics, um, person, she's her, um, field of expertise is Sparta and in particular Spartan women. And mm. how they were treated by the historical record versus, like, how basically how sexist was Sparta? And it's really interesting. Basically, uh, a lot is the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But definitely there's some sense in the, in the Greek mythology that there was at least, like, there are some times when women could own property in Greece, which, like, we didn't have until mm, real recently in yeah. the U.S. So, um, yeah, 
everyone is sexist, but in slightly different ways. <laughs> so I'm also interested in how Ganymede as a figure would have been received by me as a teen reading this in 2000. Because mm. like, uh, I, I don't know, like, does the story of Ganymede make it into that like book of Greek myths? Or was that was that sort of censored out of most Greek mythology in the like anti-gay moral panic of the 80s and 90s? Would people have been like, oh yeah, Zeus slept with women and men, and that's just how it was? Or was that like a taboo thing? Does anyone know or remember? I have no idea. Because like, I, I could totally imagine it being the case that if I read this in the year 2000, I would have been like, whoa, Zeus was gay? Or like, like, not, like just not having a, not having that an understanding. That was Exactly, exactly. Not having an understanding of it just based on not being exposed to the, the idea before. So I, I'm, I'd be super interested as to whether like the choice to focus on Ganymede is like, like, are the are they attempting to do something in the context of like, no one talks about Ganymede in the 90s or in the year 2000? Or is it just they're like, picking this to do their very special homophobia episode. Oh, I feel like it was probably the latter. They definitely had a, like, let's teach Christopher that homophobia is bad by having him get a gay guy killed. And let's teach Christopher that racism is bad by having him unknowingly work with a bunch of Nazis and not say anything until the very, 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 very end. I don't think he realized when he first got there, but he definitely knows by like the second day of work. And it's just like, well, I need a job. Yeah, I want to come back to that really fast and just mention that, Ted, I looked this up really fast. Uh, They do mention Ganymede in the Delaire book of Greek myths. And the way that they phrase it is, uh, they're talking about Paris in The Prince of Troy. Uh, His grand uncle Ganymede was such a good looking boy that Zeus, in the shape of an eagle, had stolen him from his father and carried him to Olympus to be his cupbearer. <laughs> yeah, see, so, they're calling so, it these Yeah, days. so I think there's actually, like, I think you make a good point that if in the 90s, possibly as part of the kind of gay panic following from the AIDS crisis, people were like, we're just not talking about homosexuality right now then putting this in as a subplot does seem like kind of a way for them to teach a little bit about how, hey, sometimes even the gods are gay. (laughs) Bi. Even the gods are bi. I know, yeah. But like, also, I think I would give that a lot more credence if it were handled better. But okay, obviously the gods are a better pan. point. I was I was just gonna say, listen, <laughs> at least one of the gods is definitely pan. It's <laughs> a good point. It's a good point. Yeah, great. I think there is something here where like I wanna be very judgy about their treatment of different sexualities in this book, but like I do think it's worth keeping in mind that like this was 20 years ago and they were writing in such a different cultural context. And I do think they were actually intending to do something good with this. Yeah, like, the the thing where, like, yes, there can be a gay character and he's there only to teach uh, one of the main characters a lesson about how homophobia is bad, maybe, or how you can still feel bad about not repaying your life debt to someone, even if he's gay. And then, of course, they kill their one gay. Barrier gays. Kill, yeah. <laughs> Again, I, I I don't know. I guess the text does say that he probably didn't swing both ways in Christopher's extremely nuanced judgment of the situation. 
But yeah, yeah it, it is a very shallow take on it and it doesn't go any of the interesting places I wanted it to. It probably was still extremely well-intentioned and like, I don't know if it was groundbreaking, but like progressive for its time, I guess. I don't know. Probably. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Um, I have more thoughts about that, but they actually also relate to the Nazi thing. So uh, should we talk about that? Let's talk about the Nazi thing. I was so surprised to see actual Nazis in this book from 20 years ago. It's such a different cultural context for Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> I The whole thing, I just made me very... Okay, but we're not supposed to like Christopher Moore because he's not a Nazi, right? He's still awful. Well, so I'm interested to see where this goes because he's not not a Nazi because he disagrees with them. He's not a Nazi because he thinks they're losers, which is like... It was clearly part of like a low point breakdown in his life. And he is not someone who's good at thinking about what he actually feels. This is kind of why I want to give the book some benefit of the doubt, because it's possible that this is a precursor to him actually coming to some kind of understanding about how his bigotry is a problem in itself, which he does not realize. Like he has no sense of that. Yeah, there's a scene uh, just a little bit before we see real world Christopher go job hunting where Jaleel and David are both calling him out for his abhorrent behavior. And he's like, whoa, you guys, just because I'm making these bad jokes doesn't mean that I'm part of the clan. And I, I think it's it's interesting that like right now we're dealing with the the fallout from social media of people who start with these kind of jokes and then slowly get radicalized into much more serious and violent groups and I think it's frustrating that Christopher isn't recognizing, like, the connection between the two stars on this horrible constellation. That, like, no, man, like, it's just as bad. You know, saying these jokes isn't, you know, like a get-out-of-jail-free card because, oh, I didn't mean them because they're just jokes. Like, you're still causing harm, even at this weird low level of pond scummery you're existing at now. I kind of want to give the books some credit for, they haven't made that connection explicit, Mm -hmm. which I think they should, because I think, like we've said in previous episodes, this is young adult, and sometimes it is important to make things explicit that you could leave implicit in adult works. But I do think that they are creating this connection between, I mean, like you said, Ted, he was too racist to get a job at McDonald's because he's like, oh yeah, the black people work there. That's not how we put it. And he ended up at this shop and ended up not leaving the shop when the guy was like, your name is that, has that always been like American sounding? Let's make sure you're pure enough to work here. Like he works, like he ends up working there because of his attitudes and they try to recruit him because of who he is and because of his his attitudes towards all sorts of different people. And the book is making that connection between these kind of attitudes lead people to recruit you to become a literal Nazi even if Christopher hasn't made that connection. And so, I don't know. I do want to give some credit there. Yeah. I, no, I actually think it's super interesting to me because, like, what's the intersection between this is what a vulnerable future member of the alt-right looks like. Mm-hmm. He's just, like, a dumb kid who has been who has learned a lot of stupid views and is using his, like, his position of, of relative privilege to defend himself from any kind of, like, inquiry. And that allows him to go down, be be dragged down the slippery slope. And like, 
you know, I'm not excusing any of Christopher's behavior, but I think that, like it's a pretty convincing portrayal of like, yeah, this is this kid who's like not he doesn't have the right, I don't know, support system in place to not become a Nazi. And the only thing keeping him from it is because Nazis in the year 2000 are uncool in yeah. a way that is no longer the case from the perspective of people in 2021, right? So, like, that's, like, fairly insightful and super dark to put in a book in the year 2000. But yeah, like, it really foresees some things. Yeah. And so, so it's, on the one hand, nuanced portrayal of, like, if Nazis were cooler, Christopher would be a Nazi. On the other hand, this is a YA book. So, like, why are you, why are you um, thinking you can pull this off in, like, <laughs> two brief scenes in the copy shop? It is definitely weird from our vantage point to see to think about what Nazis would have seemed like to someone at the time because they are so extreme. Like they I mean they are extreme of course now also, but like in 2000 I feel like it was like, whoa, Nazis like that's like, you know, you were there were like, you know, stakes of this size and now the stakes are like 10 times. It was like, you know, if I guess if an actual god had come down, you know, it they're almost mythological, I guess is what I'm saying. So for Christopher's like jokes or whatever to push him to this extreme, would it have seemed like at least he's not an actual Nazi or would it have seemed like, wow, these jokes are more serious than I thought? I can't remember at all what I thought reading this book. Hmm. I think it's, I think the book frames it as Christopher got in over his head because he wasn't paying attention because Everworld is so, hmm. I, I I read it. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what it, how it would have read to me at the time, but I read it as like Christopher got in over his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of my problem is if you're going to make this point, make it faster. Mm. Because this is the second of three books, mm-hmm. and mm. I don't You can't know. assume someone will read all of them. Yeah, you have to. That's exactly it. You have to assume that someone is going to read this whole series to get an understanding of Christopher and why these jokes that he's making are so bad. Because I don't think the book does a good enough job tying Christopher's views to the views of literal Nazis and using that as a way to show that Christopher is bad, actually, and that his attitudes are bad, actually, in part because we get such a sympathetic portrayal of him in other ways, right? So, like, he leaves the Nazis, and then he goes home and his parents are fighting, and he's like, I'm so sad and alone, and I really want to protect my family and my younger brother from these people, and the fact that they are a threat to my immediate family is the biggest problem with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And, like, I get that, right? Like, you're a teenager. Definitely the threat to your family is probably much more important to you than the threat to, like, black people, but that is because you are, and I can't emphasize this enough, a racist. Like, it just, I'm not really sure how well the book did in framing his views as deeply bad. And one of the ways, reasons that I think that is, so his big, like, emotional crisis thing, I guess, if we're gonna call it that, is that Ganymede saves his life when he when they're in the big, you know, airspace Red Baron battle. And then when Ganymede is taken by the Hetwan and fed to Ka'anor, Christopher doesn't do anything to save him. He lets him lets him die, lets him be taken. And what he says is, you know, he's he's 
sad and broken and whatever, and he feels like he failed Ganymede because he didn't save him back. He says, how do, how do you not risk death to save the one who saved you? How do you not die trying? How do you still think of yourself as a man? I was a useless piece of crap of a human being. True. Losers like Trent and Keith, the Nazis, thought I belonged with them. And Jesus, maybe they were right. Maybe they'd seen in me what I didn't want to see in myself. What he's tying there is not, I have bad views and they have bad views. And therefore, they think that I should be one of them. But I am not a good enough man. My toxic masculinity has convinced me that only through saving other people and, you know, repaying this debt and like being a good man allows me to be good enough not to be a Nazi. He's not saying here, I have bad views about gay people, about black people, about Jews and about women, the bigots big four, as April points out. (laughs) And therefore the Nazis think I belong with them. He's saying I failed at the task of saving someone And therefore, I'm bad enough to be a Nazi. And that connection was, like, very problematic to me. That is such a great point, especially because I think this is unwritten, but I think that this is why he has such a breakdown over Ganymede. It's this gay man saved me, but Mm. I didn't save him back. So this gay man is a better man than I am. Therefore, how can I think of myself as a man? Really but good he's point. walking this really tricky and like uninterrogated a sort of cultural tightrope of toxic masculinity where it's important to be a little bit sexist and racist and homophobic and anti-Semitic. Like it's, a, it's really important to, you know, keep everyone else in their place, but you can't get too intimidated by all those other people because then you'll become a loser like those Nazis, Trent and Keith or whatever. So you have to hate everyone else just the right amount and that never gets interrogated or pulled apart (laughs) well i everything that the two of you just said is so true but it's like it's exactly why i think uh so many men of all races uh swung their votes to trump in 2020 after four years of seeing him be a like you know a clownish but very strong mannish leader right like i think that's the that tightrope is very, very true to life and is like well realized in the form of Christopher. I have no idea how much Apple Grant it's like how much it's just they're just calling the shots as they see them and they happen to have, have found this cross section where Christopher is like a guy that probably would have voted for Trump in twenty twenty oh, if he hadn't in twenty sixteen. Right. But like but like it's it's very much a real phenomenon. And not like a, it's not like a, we should know better today, right? Like, like there, this is a, this is a problem that we're dealing with culturally. Like, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, the, I, I will be curious to see how much they actually address this incredibly real and convincing portrait of a person they put together. Because like, there is a lot of racism in these books. And that's, I think, I mean, it's hard, you know, we are all racist. That is something we all have to actively root out of ourselves. But like, at this point, it seems like there's a lot of racism that Apple Grant hasn't seen. Like, there's this whole thing at the end where David's like, we got to Olympus. Like, we're we're here with the good gods. And there's this, I don't think he specifically says quite that, but it's this very strong implication that like, you know, other gods of like less civilized cultures or whatever are dangerous. Like, I mean, they, the Aztec 
civilization like what even was that like there was nothing good for them there but like these gods will be on our side because they are good people because like the root of western civilization is here in this culture that makes them good and like Mm -hmm. i don't think the books realize that that's happening like i that doesn't mean they can't do a good job interrogating christopher's biases but like they definitely have some of their own that they need to work on yep i think the this is maybe too pat but like christopher is like struggling for him, the stakes are how to be a good man. And for us, the stakes are, like, how how can he be a good person? Mm-hmm. Right? And it's, like, it's really solving for two totally different things. Even mm-hmm. though yeah. even though a lot of the behaviors would be the same. Right? It's, like, they but, actually are quite different. Yeah. And a good man in his mind, I don't think, overlaps all that much with a good person. Accurate. Like, yeah. I think that there is, it's a Venn diagram, but the yeah, overlap yeah, yeah. is not that substantial. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely not a good person in <laughs> any, any stretch of the imagination. No, but he's a little bit confused, I think, by David and Jaleel and April's reception of him because he thinks that by making these jokes, he is filling the role of what a man is supposed to be, particularly a white man. He would never, you know, a white straight man like this. That's what a man is in his mind. And like mm-hmm. he's like, no, but I'm supposed to be making these jokes. That's what men do. This is the right way for me to fulfill this role. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of confused that they're like getting mad at him about it. Yeah. I think he actually doesn't realize that like this model of a man he has in his mind is actually not a good person. Yeah. Well, I mean, but David doesn't either. David has different, a different set of blind spots. David is presumably not anti-Semitic, but and like not sexist in the same ways that Christopher is, and he doesn't seem to be like making racist jokes about Jaleel, but he is homophobic, perhaps to the same extent that Christopher is. I missed the actual point you were making. I'm sorry. Did you want to make it again? I think I was just saying that, um, I think it's what you just said, is that Christopher and David in particular are both, have the same kind of, homophobia like oh yeah like um you know being near gay guys somehow is a crisis for their own masculinity yeah which i mean is i think one thing that stood out again like reading this book and thinking about who i was in 2000 i feel like like i went to a really a pretty small private school in in our middle school i remember when i was in like sixth or seventh grade one guy came out like to the student body and it was like a, it was like a huge deal that would have like been a first, huge deal yeah. first and it was like 2000 2001 probably mm, that's so early yeah 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 and the school had actually done a really good job like they made sure he was in homeroom with one of the science teachers who was like out to the faculty but she wasn't comfortable being out to the out to like the parents you know or like the school generally or whatever but so like anyway i just remember I also remember like being a boy, the like using the word gay or other slurs to like insult people mm-hmm. and like bully people and say like, oh, you're not, you're not good enough. You're like an outsider or whatever. Like that was totally rampant in the culture that I grew up in, in a way that like the sort of Christopher self-identifying as a cracker kind of racism was like not part of the like Mm -hmm. boy culture that I grew up in. Like I think Mm -hmm. everyone knew that racism was bad, but it was like totally fair game. Homophobia was totally fair game. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know. It's really, it's really interesting to reflect back on how in this book, like Christopher is even like, at some point he says, (laughs) he's almost saying like, I actually hate black people and women. I'm fine with gay guys, just not around me. Mm -hmm. Like as long as you don't think that I'm gay. 
which is like again it's super it's super up but it's like it's an interesting cultural relic that feels kind of true right like it's almost like the stakes for it was it was way more permissible to be homophobic because you had this just not around me excuse like the don't ask don't tell idea Mm -hmm. Um, whereas like nazis were actually uncool (laughs) that makes it an interesting choice that they had christopher's crisis happen over homophobia because that probably would have been more a more relatable and acceptable idea to their audience that like it's okay to be uncomfortable around gay people it's not okay to be uncomfortable around black people we're colorblind now it's you know pretty much still the 90s so like choosing something that might have been a conscious prejudice in their audience like Mm, you know it's mm -hmm, not that people mm -hmm. weren't racist in the 90s but they thought they Mm -hmm. weren't but they didn't necessarily think they weren't homophobic like they didn't think they were okay with gay people and so choosing that is actually like maybe a cool choice it doesn't make everything Mm. about the execution perfect but yeah Mm, that's interesting yeah it is very 90s in that like friends way oh you know where it's like not that there's anything wrong with it (laughs) yeah but there's a lot of like get off me i'm not gay like the worst Mm -hmm. thing you could possibly think is that is for you to think that i'm gay Mm -hmm. and that that is sort of a defining aspect of masculinity especially in that time right and it is also the friends era of like you know friends starts with like ross's wife comes out to him as a lesbian and like it's like okay so these women who are not main characters can be gay and like we're kind of okay with it but like, and if we have any lessons about accepting it, it won't be because any of the actual main characters are gay. Like that would no. be going way too far. Heaven forbid. Right. That's why, you know, well, yeah. also all of these characters hate each other, but none of them are going to get together. Yeah. Because <laughs> main characters would always be straight. Sure. Hmm. Can I just say though, I know that it's total barrier gaze trope, but I loved Ganymede. I was so happy to have a character to like latch on to as like, this character is great. Uh-huh. But mm-hmm. Ganymede was was so, like, nice to them, was basically there to be a hero and, like, save the day. And, like, why why couldn't they have eaten Dionysus and, like, traveled <laughs> around with Ganymede for the rest of the books? It's absolutely devastating implementation of this trope. Yeah, it's... Yeah. I mean, part of why they made him so such a stand-up guy was so we could feel extra of course, bad when we killed but- him. But, like, we just don't have any good people in these books, and it sucks. Yeah. It was very nice to have him there. He's maybe, maybe there's a heaven for gods, and (laughs) Ganymede and Galahad frolicking through a field right now. (gasps) I ship it! No, okay. Actually, Meg, thank you. I'm now going to, I'm now going to stand this theory. Because didn't we see, didn't we see one of the eaten gods in, like, Hell's prison Thing. Yeah, they were oh, in like a Thor, Captain America know. iceberg style. Right, we don't so, know that Thor was eaten. No, we don't. But we were told that sort of. We were like, maybe Thor, Thor went was missing, missing so yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. he got eaten. But yeah. what if it is a conspiracy that goes all the way to the top of Connor's <gasps> tower? And, and the all the way gods, down to Hell's Hell. Yeah, eat, the eaten gods are actually just getting Captain America cryo-frozen. Oh, and so nice. they can, they'll have to break Hope. into Hell and rescue Ganymede. Yes! And then Ganymede and Christopher can make out. You know, Ganymede can do better. <laughs> Hold Ganymede out for Galahad, Ganymede. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. Jaleel and Ganymede. Hey, I mean, apparently they were hitting it off. Probably just okay. Christopher's <laughs> homophobia. But... 
very obliquely connected because we're talking about the frozen gods and like the overall plot and what happens with Cotton or all that stuff. They apparently off screen decided to stop trying to destroy Cotton or. Yeah. Like that was, I can't remember if it was in the book two or three, but there was like a big rousing decision that we're going to change Everworld and we're going to, we're going to have to destroy Cotton or in which to do it. And April brings it up in this book and Christopher's like, no, we're not. You for, forget that. And I was like, wait, when did we decide to change our plot? And it was the April book. At the end of the first April book, they decided. Uh-huh. So probably Christopher just her, completely yeah. missed the missed the boat this entire time. <laughs> I'm sure that in the April book, the next book, she'll be like, okay, we're working towards destroying Connor. I mean, even the next book, I think... Like someone was like, so should we like have a mission? And they're all like, no, like it just, it never quite caught. Like April struck a spark and it just burned out. It just, they. I can't, like they have no allies. They have, they've been doing such a bad job. Yeah. Maybe that dragon, no, not the dragon. They've been doing a terrible job of everything. And it, it so clearly is intentional that these characters don't like each other and don't really get along. But like, why are you doing this to us, Apple Grant? Still, why don't you want us to enjoy six. these books? It's book six and they still hate each other's guts. They're not a found family at all. They're no, like they're... inmates sharing a cell. And yeah, not only that, but they have no interest in the overall mystery of how are they here? What's happening to their bodies when they're not there? Like, I feel like there's so many unanswered questions that they just don't care about. Like, Jaleel pays lip service to it sometimes, but the books never support them finding out anything about that. Like, the books are not interested in There's no plot to this series, is the problem that I have. And there's not really even a lot of plot to the individual books. This one, for example... Had no plot. But like No plot. Only plot. The the series and I have said this before and I will continue to say it. I want this series to have, I don't know, a point. And for their various, you know, walking through different kinds of woods to have a point. Like trying to find out how to get home. But it uh-huh. doesn't because they are, I mean, too busy dealing with life and death situations. Except there's never a point where it's like we will get to Olympus and Zeus will tell us how to get home like none of that it's just like i don't know that seems like a good next destination like it is so dumb so i was i was musing to ted yesterday that like i don't understand how the people who gave us animorphs are also giving us this series i mean the writing style is very reminiscent but like i feel like what happened what happened is they hit upon a really amazing premise for Animorphs. Like, that thing is, like, airtight. It's, like, beautifully set up. Everything, like, all the checks and balances are there so the fight can keep going and it's really tough, but also they can do stuff. And in each book you can have, like, a new crisis where they're, like, working towards this larger goal but also working within, like, the crisis of the week or whatever. And in this series, they did not come upon a good premise. I think they didn't, like, they, by this point, they'd written dozens of Animorphs books. They're like, we know how this works. We know how to do this. And they didn't realize how much work their premise was doing. And so they came up with this series. They're like, we can totally do this again. And they came up with a very different premise. And they didn't recognize that all of the building blocks that supported the excellence of Animorphs were missing from this premise. So now they keep trying to do sort of an adventure of the week type thing, but because there's no overarching plot, 
Like it takes like half a book to get them into any interesting adventure. And we don't really care even about them getting out of it. Like all of the load bearing premise elements from Animorphs are missing here. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very much like Ted, I think you were like is it the sophomore album problem. I think it kind of is where <laughs> they didn't realize how lucky they got with Animorphs. And they didn't like analyze that premise to figure out how to recreate those elements in this one. Mm. Also, I think the premise they chose where it's mythology flavor of the week in like a patchwork quilt land of Everworld is like actively working against a coherent narrative, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they're like committed to formally, we will introduce a new set of myths and gods and landscapes in every book. And I guess because they're probably like pantsers more than gardeners, <laughs> They're just like, well, whatever, we'll do the Greeks in a few. Panthers more than architects. Panthers more than architects. Yeah. Uh, because they're panthers more than architects, they're like, whatever, we'll do the Greeks in a few books. So we'll just mention Greeks and stuff. But they never like, you know, mm. I'm sure that they did not imagine that Fairyland would be the economic hub of Everworld <laughs> so that they could seed some interesting tidbits ahead of time, you know. And like, I'm sure they did not imagine the Hetwan are besieging Mount Olympus back in book two. So they could have like put in some foreshadowing or something, right? Like, so if you want to have this like patchwork quilt of Everworld where it all works together, you would need to do some more world building ahead of time. But instead what they have is like, okay, well, they just moved to a new location and we have to have a self-contained adventure. And like, it's, it's undermining what they're, right. Whereas like in Animorphs you have, okay, human controllers, pork bajir. Taxons, Visser 3, every week, every single week, in some combination, in some... Mm -hmm. You can build on things. Exactly. Yeah. So the thing about being like, one of the great things about being a gardener is you can plant things, and then things you didn't expect will grow. But they keep leaving their garden plot and going on to a new one every week, so they never (laughs) get to let anything grow, and they haven't planned well enough to end up anywhere useful. Worst of both worlds. They uh they beaver rat devour their new uh, singing trees every week, but yeah. we don't get to see them grow back. We just go to our next uh, ice cream scoop in the ground. Perfect analogy. They said it themselves. <laughs> Should we talk a little bit about the headline? We talked about their gender. They're not that interesting. I mean, not really. I I really like that. I I think I like the hat one only because. They are not drawn from a real life thing that I know more about than Apple Grant, mm. and thus am annoyed by. <laughs> so, like when the Hat One have these little stingers and can shoot acid, that's great. When Christopher rips off a Hat One's head and punches the back of its head as it decapitated to shoot acid out of its beak, that's hilarious. That's awesome. I love mm-hmm, that. That's mm-hmm. great, and it doesn't undermine my understanding of human mythology. So, like, bring them on. They're like quote-unquote female hat one super gross love it let's just have gross aliens the strawberries and cream transport red wings also love them they're amazing Uh i don't know what do you guys think i was a little disturbed by how little our kids seem to care about killing them (laughs) they killed someone listen the head ones themselves earlier in the book basically are like "Mm, we're we're not people and death is fine you know that seems real convenient. I have a I have a another question about tracking injuries at this point. Oh god. David and Christopher both get acid burned. Yeah. It it seemed really bad, especially the burn in Christopher's back. Yeah, like right next to his spine. And again, I'd like to posit the theory that 
They all get healed from whatever it is once they go to sleep and wake back up again. Mm-hmm. But they don't seem to remember getting injured. I feel like they couldn't possibly... I don't know. It just feels like a weak hand wave. I like the idea that there's something going on with magic. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like it's giving the books too much credit. <laughs> yep. Because, like, yeah, they he got burned, like, right next to his spine. And I guess, like, the acid maybe cauterizes the wound or whatever. But... I don't think really so. Bad. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Do I don't we know think? Things. Okay, so the most interesting thing about the Het one was the revelation of Ka Anor at the end of the book, which I'd love to get our takes mm. and theories on. The idea of the big bad as fear itself, I just want to roll my eyes at. The <laughs> idea of the Het one somehow have created a god killing god through their like maybe hardcore Worship. rationalism or atheism <laughs> or something is, like, kind of awesome. I'm not sure they'll be able to deliver on that, but the, there's, like, a little hint of, like, maybe Kanor isn't a god, it's just, like, a god-killing force that's mm. brought about by the collective mm-hmm. will of the Hetwan. Which, like, that's kind of interesting, maybe. Like, mm-hmm. we didn't get any nuance to Hetwan culture other than that one little inkling in that scene. But... Uh-huh. Well, so, it's interesting. In a lot of narrative, you end up solving the problem of, like, the invading aliens by, like, especially the invading insect-like aliens by saying, like, oh, they actually are just, like, insects, except in a more extreme way. You kill the main one and they all die. Mm. This would have to be kind of the other way around if the Hetwan are creating Ka'anor through their collective will in order to destroy other gods. Then we would have to, like, kill all the Hetwan in order to kill Ka'anor. Nice. Fortunately, they have no compunction about killing Hetwad, so right. that'll be easy. Just throw diamonds at them, I guess. Oh, yeah. Why are diamonds poisonous to them? Was well, I guess that if they're constantly stated? eating things, if they eat like a rock, then it'll kill them. But we need those diamonds to buy goods and services. <laughs> well, they yeah, did. They, they, they don't have them. They bought yeah. ponies. And that was <laughs> the, the last, last of their, of their diamonds. diamonds. They must have gotten some real good ponies. Also, I feel like maybe you didn't need to throw handfuls of the diamonds maybe one <laughs> at each hit one and see if that did the same amount of damage you know to what internal. april did nothing wrong <laughs> april did nothing wrong Great david point. got yeeted out of there and someone yeah. had to step up it wasn't going to be christopher it's true yeah i, I, I thought april only april. turned around through solidarity because at least christopher could throw a punch at the head one what was april gonna do <laughs> i i i hate you so females much. don't have bodies i hate so much that that line, I was like, I can't believe, like, I can believe you said that. That actually is the problem because you are <laughs> uh, the worst. But, ugh, just terrible. Yeah. So I'm I'm rereading Ganymede's death. R.I.P. Mm-hmm. Ganymede. Uh, gone too soon. April puts her hand over Christopher's eyes as he's screaming, watching this happen. Mm-hmm. That's kind of nice. Yeah, April does nothing wrong the whole time. <laughs> So interesting Ka'anor note, I was writing Ka'anor in my notes and um, my phone autocorrected it to K-A-A, like K Applegate. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't think there's a connection between K-A Applegate, Applegate and Ka'anor, but I just wanted to put that out there. That is now how I read it every time. I That is very funny and I like that a lot. They are fear itself. <laughs> I can see them wanting to see themselves that way. They want to, uh, they're, they're writing like horror or horror adjacent stuff. Yeah. So, so they're, they're being taken to Olympus right now, ostentatiously to be turned into immortals. 
I want them to get there and find out they're technically already immortal because they've been magically healing through all of the books. So far. <laughs> be cool. Well, I think I'm kind of wondering if like they'll get turned into immortals or whatever, and then that just means that Connor can eat them now. So like it's not Ooh. really it's not really a good thing. No, it seems like Christopher's giving up his immortality to repay his sacrifice to Ganymede somehow. Oh yeah, but that I didn't understand that whole his whole speech at the end, but that's fine. You're probably right. Yeah, it's a way to keep him mortal. So we did get in this book possibly our first nonviolent gods. Like, because, you know, there are gods of all sorts of stuff in lots of cultures, and as we pointed out, yeah. mostly we're getting the gods of war or well, hell. Nonviolent in a certain sense. Dionysus mm. definitely doesn't have a problem with sexual violence. Is that, I mean, is he, that true? He has his illusory guys, like... Oh. assault April and, you know, generally mess with people. Consent does not seem to that's, be a big part true. of the proceedings. That's true. He doesn't proceedings. seem to have a huge understanding of consent. Uh, nor does anyone when talking about Zeus. Uh, but, okay, mainly they're not there for violence. They're there for, like, partying and stuff. Which, I guess, is a nice change. I don't know. It felt like kind of the flip side of, like, another component of toxic masculinity and, like, male culture of, like, We've got, we're all fighting and wars and yay. And like, oh, also these ones are partying. They're kind of silly. Like, I don't know. We haven't gotten any gods of anything worthwhile. <laughs> it's also like the fact that the sort of fat shaming that's going on with Dionysus and like, mm. he's like a, he's like a burden and a loser. Like, instead of being like a tough warrior god, he's like basically a liability mm-hmm. and they're just like trying to get him out of stuff it's like they needed they needed a quote-unquote low status god that they could rescue Mm. because like if Ares was there Ares would just kill everyone yeah like so there's this whole thing where Ka'anor has invaded Everworld and is gonna like eat all the gods and that is only bad for our heroes because it means that the gods want to escape into our world and I feel like there is a potential narrative here that they clearly have just not chosen at all where like there are a bunch of gods of, like, the hearth and the harvest and the mm-hmm. rivers and, like, the sky and all sorts of great stuff that makes up the world. And, like, they're going to be eaten and doesn't that suck? There's, like, a lot of value in Everworld that's going to be lost. And instead, like, these books have definitely chosen the, like, everything sucks in Everworld and our heroes are always miserable route. Which, like, I feel like does take the sting out of Ka'anor a little bit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like... Who cares if all these gods die? They suck. Except that they might invade our world to, like, escape it. But, like, it's only mm. these dynamics of violence. There's none of the, like... I don't know. Also, the Hetwan world is super cool. Like, I don't know. I hope that the Hetwan end up getting a little bit of the Yerk treatment where they're, like, seen as having value. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll team up with a Hetwan to wander around. I would love to team up with an Axe-style Hetwan. <laughs> I would also love that. Thank you. Hey, uh, where was Senna this book? They're still looking for Senna. They've just I, never found her. Yeah, I'm so sad. You know, I was I was expecting the whiplash of they lose and find Senna in every book, but <laughs> we have an entire book with no Senna except on a wanted poster. So the back of this book is like, they find themselves at the single most powerful area in Everworld, Olympus. It seems that the evil alien god Ka'anor plans to take Olympus for himself, and Zeus isn't having any of it. None of that happened in this book. Yeah, it's not. It might happen in the next book, maybe. <laughs> Let's see, I'm double-checking the last page. Okay, they do actually, like, 
get to Olympus. Oh, yeah. yeah on do. page 183 out of 186 pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the back of the book cover, not, not the best. Not the most accurate. Now I kind of want to read the back of the next cover. No, and, like, don't try do engage. it. We have to predict first. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I don't actually, I don't have that much else to say about this book. There are some interesting 90s moments. Like That's definitely yeah. true. Let me see if I have anything else to say. There was a, there was a haul. They need to haul. I appreciated that. A lot oh. of getting faced in this book. Dionysus. Somebody got sliced from their unit through the top of their head. And for a second, I was like, what unit? Is that like ammo or like a backpack? Is this an army reference I'm not getting? And then I was like, oh, wait. Oh, wow. Yep. I totally missed that. Yep. Got it. Did we have, um, did Boner Patrol pick up on the thing where uh, Christopher is just extremely turned on when he first sees Ganymede? Um, yes, but I mean. <laughs> Please weigh in, Boner Patrol. There was a Wheaties moment! Thank you, yes. Jenny, I highlighted that. and was like, Jenny, Jenny, Wheaties! Would you like to Except read that moment? It was in Christopher's head, so I don't even appreciate it. Um, I, I didn't write the whole thing down, but he's thinking about processing a thought. He's like, it's moving along slowly, like a box of Wheaties on the conveyor belt at a grocery yeah. store. I was like, yeah, way to buy Wheaties. Amazing. I would just like to point out the speaking of Boner Patrol real fast, what he says about seeing Ganymede for the first time. He says, I was excited attracted and then later he says uh only after i had felt that first rush of improbable carnal lust what <laughs> what is improbable carnal you're a teenager lust? exactly that's amazing <laughs> very weird there i have one other thing that's about the everworld lore mm. so super helpful analogy that christopher gives us in the beginning of the <gasps> book is this everworld this terrible analogy is like a mickey mouse balloon inside another larger balloon what? Or maybe outside of it or next to it, <laughs> as he says. Mean? Why does it, why does he, what does it mean? My first <laughs> note is literally, page seven, Mickey balloon analogy is so dumb. <laughs> I hate it so much. I don't understand it. Um, You know what blew my mind? Uh. Christopher's family doesn't eat, they're not health food nuts, which means they eat eggs. Yeah. That was very ridiculous. 2000s. Poor yeah. eggs. I'd completely forgotten. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> by the time I actually cooked for myself, I think we were over that, like culturally. But, I had like, completely yeah. forgotten. Eggs were so, so unhealthy in the year 2000, that. apparently. That's right. High cholesterol. Yeah. I heard that on an ad in a podcast this week where it was like, did you know that if you eat two chicken eggs for breakfast, that's your cholesterol for the day? And I was like, is this back? I no. thought we agreed that there were, we are not going to talk about this anymore. <laughs> it's nutritionally unfounded. Uh, okay. Other thousand, 2000s. What, uh, what is a, I, I think I could imagine, but like Christopher describes a, I think creepy and disturbing computer dating service. What what exactly is a computer dating service oh. in the year two thousand? Like an on, I don't remember that reference. Like like was there online dating stuff? Did OKCupid exist yet? Probably not. Like New no. Harmony was that around? Is this like the thing? Because he's also at the beginning convincing a girl in a chat room that I was a twenty five year old software billionaire. I heard that and I was like, first you're not convincing her. Second, she's probably not a girl. It's <laughs> Marco. She's not. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like so she could be anyone, like, Christopher. It's like a, it's like a, you know, singles chat room thing, maybe. Mm, okay. There was a lot of Callista Flockhart jokes yeah. 
because they called the het ones Allie McBugs because they're thin like Callista Flockhart and she played Allie McBeal so he calls them Allie McBugs and the fact that I had to explain it for that long (laughs) tells you how funny Christopher is. I completely forgot who Callista Flockhart was so I was just like wow that's super random that he keeps calling them Allie McBugs (laughs) until I looked up who Callista Flockhart was. Also are they really thin? Thin? I thought they were, like, insect-like. Are they skinny insects? That's I imagined so them, like, wasp, you know, oh, that makes tops. sense. So they're, they're the thorax yeah. cinches or whatever that part is called. So this was not specifically 2000s, I don't think, but it's just something that's very much not in my vocabulary, so I was very entertained to see it multiple times. Christopher talking about Senna. I used to go with her. I would just, like, I would never say that. It feels very like teen movie in like the mm-hmm. year 2000. Speaking of which, at some point, Christopher is screaming like the entire cast of I Know What You Did Three Summers Ago. Yep. There's also the wood chipper scene from Fargo. When Senna is being introduced in her, it's like Christopher is she's hot but evil expression. Mm. It was very 90s. That she has impressive hardware and seriously corrupted software. It's like <laughs> trying to be like, ooh, computer analogy. <laughs> Sounds incredibly stupid. Mm-hmm. There was a reference to watching the little blue bar at the bottom of my web browser, which, like, I'd forgotten that was a thing. Like, we still have a lot of blue bars for things loading, but not, like, web pages aren't that, like, blue bar loading anymore. Quite the throw. Oh, yeah. Okay, I think this is describing Dionysus. I, I don't remember, but the quote that I wrote down is, he looked like that guy on The Practice. All dark and intense and unshaven. You guys watch The Practice? I did not. I did. I know who this guy is. I'm going to look up the actor's name. You guys keep going. We did have a description of Dionysus that he was John Goodman-sized and Robert Downey Jr. level of stoned. Before RDJ got sober. Yeah, yeah. Dylan McDermott. Oh, I know that guy. That's who who looks all um, dark and intense and unshaven. Christopher is applying to jobs on foot, which is a very, like, what your parents probably still tell you to do, but, like, really is not how you apply to jobs anymore. Also, he, the whole job searching thing was so effed up, like, partially because he's a racist asshole, and he's like, I can't work at fast food because it's all, as he says, fast food was all blacks and Mexicans around here, so fuck you. But then he also says he can't work at Starbucks because... David worked at a Starbucks, which is like, there. Are, first of all, there are lots of Starbucks, even in the early 2000s, work at a different one. And second of all, okay, I can't work at a Starbucks because this guy I don't like also works at a Starbucks, so I'm going to go work for Nazis, is the most Christopher logic, just so indicative of how his brain works. Really is. What a jackass. Just like in Wandering Through Everworld, he just like wanders into the coffee shop it's like his last option i feel like because again we were feeling kind of irritated that there was just a couple scenes in here they could have he could have started at the coffee shop just making copies of his resume to take around and you know talking to some of the guys there and they seem oh they seem kind of weird but oh they laughed at one of my jokes oh no one laughs at my jokes anymore Uh, and then he goes and he like walks all around and he makes it back to the coffee shop because he's out of resumes and they're like you seem like a hip here. young guy. Why don't you work here with us? Anyway, I think 
that, that would have been, been more, yeah, maybe like a little story more structured to the actual job hunt. Yeah, yeah. I have a 90s moment that is, it was actually also a Christopher joke that I genuinely enjoyed. So I feel like I need to disclose this. This whole sequence I found utterly delightful. So when they get to Ka'anor's city, the Needle City, you know, they're all like, oh, you know, we can't, we can't get across. We can't go down this slope. You know, we couldn't make it six feet. The Marines couldn't make it six feet. David, not an agreement, but the general was already looking ahead. Yeah, but if you had artillery, you could sit up here and blow the hell out of everything. This is an amazing defense, amazing fort or whatever, but if you had artillery, he broke off and nodded to himself, satisfied. <laughs> April put her hand gently on David's arm. David, I'm pretty sure we don't have any artillery. <laughs> yeah, and then if we had just the right Pokemon, we'd be all set. <laughs> Loved it. Loved it. Okay, but prediction, they're going to get artillery. They're going to... Uh, no, prediction, they're going to go to Pokemon Land. That's going to be the 11th book. Amazing. They're going to use Charizard to defeat the Midgard Serpent. Oh, they should just let me finish these books. That would be so great. You know, I, yeah, yes, yeah. we wrote Nanowars book. Let's write Neverworld book. The Pokemon I'd one. Read it very I'm much definitely more. not doing that. Catch the Charizard. <laughs> no, it, it needs better. Chase the Charizard. Chase the Charizard. Chase the Charizard. Chase the Charizard. Hey. I have a new Everworld idea okay. where it's fandoms instead of mythologies. <gasps> Whoa. Oh, the, the Wait, that's just Ready Player One. Never mind. I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> I just got really excited about our kids catching Pokemon. <laughs> I mean. Okay, I do want to share. Uh, there were there were several more 90s moments or 2000s moments in, in the party, Dionysus' party. There was, uh, he describes... A pair of Britneys and a Moesha or two, mm-hmm. which my phone does not recognize Moesha as a proper noun, and I'm offended on her behalf. There's also the hordes of Pamela Anderson Lees and Leonardo DiCaprio's, and I was like, Pamela Anderson Lee? Mm-hmm. Like, and so then I, I Googled her. I was like, oh, is that like her married name? I was like, no, that was her married name from her first marriage. Yeah. She's on her fifth marriage, which was like three days ago. Oh, really? Like, oh, that's this very funny. Week, she just got married again. I was like, Congrats she married her bodyguard. Yeah, I oh. hope she's doing well. Hope they're very happy. There was also an Oscar de la Hoya reference. Mm. And they were describing sort of tactical gear uh, uh, one could wear and said options were Mad Max gear or Keanu in the Matrix. Very mm. of the moment. And there was also a reference to Puffy's Millennium Party. <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. That went right over my head. But yeah, that's I such totally a good call didn't out. see that. I was like, should I assume that this is like Puff Daddy? And did Puff Daddy a have a names. very good millennium party? I don't <laughs> or a famous know one. what's happening. I mean, if Apple Grant knew about it. <laughs> oh, man. Um, we also had uh, that April will someday be Celine Dion. And... At some point, the Hetwaner are singing, and the pitch drops until it reaches a pleasant Cheryl Crow. Oh, yes. Some good represent. A lot of name dropping in this one. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. I mentioned this in the summary, but they do teach the Truffula Trees to sing the Friends theme song. That was great. The trees which is start clapping. Totally that delightful. Yeah. Do they do the right number of claps? Or? I'm sure they do not. Yeah. It's unspecified, <laughs> the, the number of claps. The only thing that I liked about this book was April. <laughs> Uh, because April's the only thing I like about a lot of 
these books. She had a couple of amazing lines. Christopher is deliberately provoking her by saying, girls don't sing rock. Girls singers just moan and whine about what jerks men are. April replies, strange that would be such a popular theme with women singers, April said dryly. I mean, how many of them even know you personally? <laughs> that was so, April is so funny. Yeah, she's the funniest. Hilarious. Christopher is never funny. Except Amazing. for the Pokemon joke. So good. But April actually set him up, so. Yeah, that's true. That was, that, yeah, that was, that was great. And then she also has a line later on where, <laughs> she's so funny. Christopher, you're like the encyclopedia of old stuff. TV, music, April paused for a well-timed beat, attitudes. <laughs> yeah, she's so good. Love her. So good. Also, that was after he re- he called someone like Richie Cunningham, who's a character from Happy Days that I had to look up because yep. I was born in the mid '80s, like Christopher, and have never heard of Richie Cunningham. Yeah, also made an Alfred E. Newman joke, who I also had to look up. That's the cover model for Mad Magazine. Oh, I got, I got that. I, I, I that's, that's more, that's more fair game. Uh, we also get confirmation that April does not plan to have sex until she's married. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Looking mm-hmm. at Ganymede, it makes her think about marriage. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> no, as 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 messed up as it is, I totally called that as like the like yeah, they, that Apple Grant was going to make a plot point out of the fact that all the boys think April has had sex and she kind of like feels like she has to have wanted to have had sex, even if she hasn't admitted to it. But here she is being like, nope, surprise. <laughs> So I, I was listening to the You're Wrong About episode where they read Jessica Simpson's book uh, this morning. And it was reminding me that, like, yeah, around 2000, that's when the whole, like, sexy virgin thing was, like, a huge trope, um, especially in pop music. Like, mm, you have, like, yeah, like yeah. that was Jessica Simpson's, like, whole thing. I think it was also a thing for Britney. Like, yeah, it, was, yeah, yeah. it was this big thing. Yeah. Well, she was, like, wasn't she kind of, like, the response to Britney as, like, a like less problematic sexy virgin <laughs> like I don't, I don't know i haven't finished i don't know episode. what i'm talking yeah. about yeah so. i mean well no like britney had a whole arc where she started off as the sexy virgin and then got moved more towards the sexy and less towards the virgin in part because of like the way that she was treated in the media and it was yeah. so there was a lot of um like in christian circles right jessica simpson was one of them but also there was this whole thing with um mandy moore mm. Um, so there's a lot of that in the in the early aughts uh, that we talked a lot about at church. Yeah, we were really interested in whether these women who are singing music for us have had sex or not. Yeah. It's like super invested. It's gross. It's very gross. It is. It is. Public ownership of women's bodies is not cool. Okay, we should have a crossover episode with Sarah and Michael from You're Wrong About. <laughs> where it's You're Wrong About... Everworld. Nope, you were right about Everworld. No, for like people who have nostalgia. And then we just make oh. them read one of these books. And they'll be like, why are you wasting our time? <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> we have important investigative journalism to do. Why are you making us read this stupid book? Sorry, we're halfway through, you guys. We're, <gasps> we're halfway through. Halfway through. Oh my thank f- And we only have, we, we have mostly non-David, non-Christopher books left. That's so true. Because we're front-weighted okay. than David and Christopher, yeah. Good point. Should we look at the cover of the next one? I'm going to get up again. Uh, yeah, sure. What, this one's called, like, Gateway to the Gods. Is that right? Gateway of the Gods. This isn't the one with the really horrifying cover yet. No, number eight, I think, has an alien again. 
Okay, here's the thing. That horrifying cover with the with the coup hatch on it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, whenever like my books are stacked somewhere and I'm sorting them, that's always the one I end up randomly <laughs> looking at. And I real life jump scare every time. I'm like, ugh. It gives oh, me like who is this? Is this Zeus? It must be Zeus. So this he is the next a, one. He has blue face makeup. Yeah, there's like fuzzy blueness over his so, eyes. He just Flip looks like around, a Greek beauty philosopher Why are these so bad? Oh, that yeah, looks so like is... a yeah, that just looks like a statue. Do yeah, it really inside, does. Like a inside. Oh, we statue? do. It's actually um, some statues. So there's uh, <laughs> there's this big like some kind of Greek temple. Uh, looks like a ruin. And there's uh, is that the Venus de Milo? Is that the the armless statue? Armless I mean, and also kind of. It's pretty distorted. Yeah. And then I think these are our kiddos down here. Yeah, there are the four of them. So they have, really don't look anything like them. They're all very creepy looking. I'm very, very upset about this statue. Here's why I'm very upset about this statue. Please go on. I can't tell. Can, does she have a head? It looks like she doesn't have a head, but it's also Wait very fuzzy and distorted. So The only reason Greek statues are all like white and like broken... Sorry, Gray. Am I stealing your point? No, you no, please. No, please. No, no, no. Go you on. finish. I, I just had no, the no. same thought. No, that no, was no. exactly you... what I was going to say. Go on, please. No, but the statues should all be like brightly painted and intact, right? And intact. They, they should have arms. 20 years ago? Heads. Well, I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Was that a recent discovery or have we known for a long time that the statues uh, used to be brightly painted? Is it like the feathery dinosaurs? That's a really good question. Them? I don't know when we learned about that, but I also... It was probably after 20 years ago, but like they should have heads, even if you didn't know that they were painted. That's a good point. There's no reason for them to be ruins at this point. Also, it was 2000 when the guy found the thing. So oh, okay. it, it would have been so. very, very much of like would have been probably too recent for them to include it in the book. But my point is heads and arms for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, probably they just want to evoke... What we think of, like maybe the statues in the book will have heads and arms. I don't know. So what do we think is going to happen? I mean, obviously they're going to hang out with the Olympians, at least well, someone. being besieged by the Hetwan, so uh, I don't know. I think, so Dionysus is going to be like, he was all like, Zeus loves me, but Zeus isn't going to give a crap. That seems accurate. Yep. Yeah, they're going to be like, I don't know. Hopefully we'll get to interact with like more than two characters. Hopefully now that they've gotten to the, like, really gods that really matter, quote unquote, <laughs> we'll actually get some, like, plans. I don't know. Which... I just, all I want is for them to be like, hey, Zeus, can we kill Kaanor? And Zeus to be like, you know what, let's do it together. And then they have, like, a super group. But that's probably not going to happen. They're probably I really gonna get want run them to be Olympus. like, hey, Zeus, how come we're here and also at home? And how do we get to be at home and not here? And for Zeus to be like push this button, and then they do, and then the series ends. I want them to hang out with Athena. I hope that she gives them some good insight. That would be great. I like her very much. So which god is April going to have a conflicted flirtation with in this book? Ooh, Aries. Athena. Ooh, Athena's better. What'd you say? Meg said Athena. I oh, it's better. not going to be Athena. <laughs> I know, but... Artemis. You know? Artemis. Artemis is a good one. They would be Art friends. I... So... The version of the Greek gods that is my current headcanon going into this this next book are the 
very hot anime gods from the video game Hades that came out <laughs> last year. They're like, all of the Greek gods are in that game are what I have heard described as like Tumblr hot. They're all these kind of like sexy anime style, uh, multicultural um, mm. versions of the gods. Nice. So uh, that's who I'm imagining going into this next book. I like it. All right. So we think flirtation with Ares. Interesting. Okay. I'm maybe curious. Like, maybe like Cupid or, or, or um, Eros. Wait, Eros. no, those are... Which one is Greek? Is Cupid Eros. Greek? Eros. Okay. So we have five unknown mythologies left to explore. Up to five. We There's a coup hatch on one of the covers. So we might have a coup hatch mythology. What are the other four that we think that Apple Grant are going to jump on? Like, we could easily I revisit mean, Norse. Been... We could revisit yeah. another thing. But Egypt. Like... Egypt. We haven't yeah, done Egypt yet. Egypt, Egypt is, like, the big missing one. What Egypt else? is, like, you can feel like you're being diverse without going that far out of Europe. They'll definitely go there. I am not confident that they'll do that many new mythologies. I, I think um, they haven't been doing one per book. And, I mean, I guess you could call this past book, Ooh. like, the Ka'anor book. Yeah, I think this is the Ka'anor book, and then I think I think that Hell is the underworld, even though it's Norse again. Oh, okay, okay. You know, I think since we've had three books about Norse mythology, that this is the first of three books about Greek mythology. Hmm, <laughs> I like that. That's a good. That's yeah. a good theory. Yeah, I mean, maybe something Middle Eastern, like they they've like name dropped some Mesopotamian stuff. I could see them doing something with that. Somebody apparently trades with the city of Atlantis. I would be interested oh, to see. Oh yeah, that. let's get Ooh, that. Would be great. That would be great. So okay, here's here's my theory now. So we're gonna find out that Kaanor has already eaten all of the other pantheons that we haven't <laughs> heard about, so that they don't have to deal with like setting an episode there. It's gonna be like, oh, we were about to go to like Egypt or Mesopotamia or whatever, but Kaanor already already ate those guys. So. <laughs> I would buy it. Oh no. Yeah, I, I was actually, at the beginning of the book, they're like, Ka Nor, the god eater. I was like, do we know that he's eaten any gods? There was that rumor about Thor, but then we found Thor in Hell's Dungeon, so unclear. But then I guess he did eat Ganymede in this book, so he ate a god. So he is officially a god eater and not just weirdly the kids somehow know this. Yeah. All right, final prediction. What? No, I have one. I meant like my Ted's final prediction. Oh, okay. Ted's final first. prediction. No, you can do yours. I just didn't want it to be closed after that. Okay. Go. Don't worry. A prediction. Merlin comes back in this book. Merlin talks to them on Olympus. Mm, all have of a the reasonable white people talking together. Yeah. yeah. Merlin is posing as Zeus, who was actually eaten. <gasps> I love that. That's a great prediction. That would make things better. That would make things better. I predict that David will teach some methods of modern warfare to the Olympians, and they'll use that to hold off the siege. Possibly. I think artillery, but maybe not in this book. But, like, they're going to get, like, Hephaestus, who I can never pronounce, to make cannons and stuff. And that's canon. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Oh, I think Senna's going to come back. Are we going to find out more about the history between April and Senna? Oh, yeah, it's an oh, April yeah. book. Wait, April, wait, so what's April's arc? Because we, we now have David and Christopher have, like, their, like, nuance arc introduced. So it's Maybe April's turn. her arc is she's going to realize Rent is an overrated musical? <laughs> no one's going to realize that no, she's in 2000. Oh, okay, you are correct. <laughs> I think she's going to trust the Olympians too much because she has 
like is flirting with one of the gods and then she'll learn that actually they're not to be trusted and the kids all need to run away from Olympus at the end of the book. I don't think she gets a character changing arc. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like we're going to learn more about her backstory with Senna. Like I feel like there's they've been alluding to like some weird thing that Senna did with their parents or something. She doesn't have the latitude to be a full character because she has to be the woman. So I don't think she's going to get the kind of interesting depth even if we hate him that Christopher has. Or mm. even worse, it'll be the her her um, virginity is somehow a plot point. Like they want to sacrifice her. Or no, something. or or just like some hot Greek god wants to sleep with her, and so she'll have a lot of internal deliberation about this. Hmm. No, I bet her virginity is going to play because like there is a lot about like you know Artemis is all about the virgins and like um, I I could see her virginity being not just threatened as a plot point, but like a plot point that like allows her to do things or like forces her into things in this book. Yeah, that I, seems I think like it's I'm probably going to be like true. It. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to it. Yeah, but we'll talk about it more next time. Yeah, good talk, everyone. If you want to find us, we are at anamorphology.com and at anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. I have to say it in the episode so it can become the title, but we are all the Christoph haters. Christoph haters unite! <laughs> I hate it so much. Uh, you Christoph hate it so much. Uh, yeah. yeah. I Christoph hate it so much. You guys, today in Life is a Rich Tapestry, there is somebody I went to put Gateway to the Gods on my Goodreads, and there is somebody who has given it five stars, and one of her points is Christopher being the love of my life in all caps. <gasps> and this same person gave two.